Secondly, you don't have to trust pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there is something in this country called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, um, which is part of the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act that has been in place since the late 1980s. Once a vaccine is put onto the market, if you very quickly through this linked computerized medical record system can tell who's gotten the vaccine and who hasn't. If there's a problem with the vaccine, it'll come up very quickly. So there's no hiding. Welcome to Kidding Around with Dr. Candace. That's me, your host. This show is all about kids' health. My expert guest and I want to help you Make sure your kids are happy and healthy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Kidding Around. I'm Dr. Candice, and thank you so much for listening. I'm so excited about this episode today. We are answering all of your vaccine questions, concerns, and clearing up some vaccine misinformation because there's a lot out there. And to help me do that is my guest, Dr. Paul Offit. Now, let me tell you a little about him. He is amazing. He is a renowned vaccinologist, director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, professor of vaccinology and professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He is also highly published and awarded for his work in the field of vaccinology. One of his books that I'm going to mention, Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All, was selected as one of the best nonfiction books of the year. I personally stood in line at the AAP conference in Orlando to meet you, Dr. Offit, and get a signed copy of that book. And I could go on and on, but I just want to thank you so much for coming to kid around with me today. My pleasure. Awesome. So let's get started. These questions are designed, as you know, as a pediatrician to answer all, not all, because there's so many. There's new ones that pop up every day that I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that one. (laughs) But these are the common questions that parents ask me and other pediatricians and all this information that's swirling around and in the social media world and things of that nature. So I can't wait to hear your responses, because from what I understand, you help to debunk a lot of this misinformation and inform people in the best way. So my first question is, I hear a lot of parents, I'm getting, as all pediatricians are, are getting a lot of patients now who don't want to vaccinate their children, right? And some of the explanations I get as I try to engage them in in conversation is that my child is healthy. I feel like I know what to do to keep them healthy. They have a strong immune system and that's what the immune system is for. And so I don't think she or he needs vaccines. So that that sense of people not feeling like we need them anymore. So is that true? Why do we need vaccines? And kind of give us that historical perspective to understand why they are important. Right. So in order to be protected from the germs that can cause suffering and hospitalization and death, like viruses and bacteria, you need specific immunity meaning you have to have immune cells in your body that recognize that particular virus or that particular bacteria. There's only two ways to acquire that specific immunity. One is to be naturally infected by that virus or bacteria, and the second would be to be vaccinated against that virus or bacteria. No matter how strong your immune system is, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how good your diet is or how much you exercise, the only way to get specific immunity is to either be naturally infected or vaccinated. And you don't want to be naturally 
fed, because although you'll be immune, you may have to pay a very high price for that immunity, like suffering or hospitalization and occasionally death. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a healthy, vigorous man. He was a patrician, he was certainly well-nourished, he was active, and he was felled by polio because he didn't have any specific immunity to that virus. Oh, that's a great point of view. So that just totally answers that question. And one thing you brought up, how people have these vaccine parties, chicken pox, measles. Let's just get together and expose our kids and then we're done with that. They have a little working understanding of what you just said. But tell us why that's dangerous. Right. So let's say chicken pox, for example. Before there was a chicken pox vaccine, every year in the United States, there would be about um, uh, uh, 10,000 people who would be hospitalized with chickenpox and about 100 who would die from chickenpox. Um, now, when they were hospitalized, they were hospitalized because chickenpox virus or varicella virus infected the lungs or because it infected the brain or because it caused severe dehydration or because it disrupted the skin with blisters that then allowed bacteria to enter, causing awful diseases like necrotizing fasciitis, which could result in amputation. So chickenpox was a bad disease. I mean, it wasn't measles and that it didn't cause 50,000 hospitalizations and 500 deaths. It caused 10,000 hospitalizations and about... Uh, 100 deaths. And you were actually much more likely to be hospitalized and die as an adult than if you were infected as a child. So some people argue, at some level, understandably, let me take my child to a chickenpox party. In other words, let me expose my child to someone else who has chickenpox. That way they'll get chickenpox as a child, and therefore they'd be much less likely to be hospitalized or die. At some level, you could make an argument for that. And you can't make an argument for that anymore because now we have a chickenpox vaccine. So you can get the immunity that, that occurs following natural infection without having to pay the price of natural infection. Now there is absolutely no excuse for exposing your child to chickenpox. I mean, we actually um, did a film about uh, just educating parents about vaccines years ago. And one of the, the, the sisters of one of the guys who was a cameraman had taken their child to a chickenpox party where the child got something called hemorrhagic chickenpox and died, died after getting infected in a chickenpox party. There's no excuse for that. Right. Absolutely. I totally agree. And what about this wave of, you know, there's a recent story and there are stories all the time where people are following Facebook groups, for instance, you know, anti-vax information and, okay, if your child gets the flu, you don't need the flu vaccine. If you, you get the flu, you can use rosemary, uh, elderberry, essential oils, you know, all of these things. We have something for this. Don't worry. We can treat our kids without having to use the vaccines. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, there's no, there's no good treatment for influenza. I mean, there's, there's uh, um, a product called Tamiflu, where the generic name is oseltamivir. If you are an otherwise healthy person and you take oseltamivir, that could shorten the illness by a day or two, but it's certainly not like an antibiotic that just eliminates the, the bacteria. In this case, it would be a virus. So the, the best way to um, to deal with influenza is to prevent it with the vaccine. So it's amazing to me all of all the news stories about Wuhan virus, which are in the news every day, in you know national news, international news every day. Um, so far in this country, we've had 12 cases of Wuhan virus, which is a coronavirus, and no deaths. 
However, this year we've had, we have had 140,000 hospitalizations with influenza and 8,200 deaths, okay? 140,000 hospitalizations with influenza and 8,200 deaths. That's a virus you need to worry about. And the best way to deal with that is to get an influenza vaccine, which isn't 100% effective, it's about 60% effective, but that's much better than if you don't get it, in which case it would be 0% effective. And there is no treatment for influenza. I mean, for all these sort of concoctions that are out there on Facebook or on social media, um, if there was a clear, clear way to treat influenza virus, companies would sell it. Absolutely. And so the message here, again, is prevention, prevention, prevention. That's the bane of a pediatrician's existence. We want to prevent illnesses and vaccines are to prevent preventable illness. Those infections that spread rapidly, that are deadly and devastating. We're not trying to vaccinate everything, common cold, right? There's 14 vaccines that we give before the age of two, right? Or we're protecting against 14 uh, vaccine preventable illnesses. And so this message that we're trying to vaccinate everybody is not true and prevent it instead of worrying about using all of these concoctions, as you say, to deal with it in the aftermath. I totally agree with that. All right. So moving on. Then there are conspiracy theories. You know, big pharma is just trying to make money. The healthcare industries, us doctors are just trying to get rich. You know, again, you've already made the case that there is a need, a historical perspective, a huge need for vaccines. They work. They save lives. But what about this distrust that it's all about the money? How do we establish this trust for our system and and the belief in vaccines? Well, there's a couple ways to look at this. First of all, vaccines are not big money-making products. I mean, in 1957-55, in the mid-1950s, there were 27 companies that made vaccines. By the early 1980s, there were 18 companies that made vaccines. Today, there are four companies that make vaccines for American children. If if these products are so lucrative, how come everybody's bailing out of the industry? The reason is, is that vaccines are something you give once or a few times in your lifetime. They're never going to compete with lipid-lowering agents or diabetes drugs or neurologic drugs or psychiatric drugs or lifestyle products you give every day. That's why, as for the most part, companies bail out of, have bailed out of vaccines. So they're not big money makers. Secondly, you don't have to trust pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there is something in this country called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, um, which is part of the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act that has been in place since the late 1980s. Once a vaccine is put onto the market, and you very quickly through this linked computerized medical record system can tell who's gotten a vaccine and who hasn't. If there's a problem with the vaccine, it'll come up very quickly. So there's no hiding. I mean, even if vaccine makers act unethically or illegally or aggressively or misrepresent information, that, that's going to be found out. And there's frankly, it's not a good business model to make a product that you knowingly hurts children. So if they, if they, misrepresent data in, in, in say, a, a publication, you'll very quickly find out once the vaccine is put on the market. So it's, there is no hiding. You don't have to trust pharmaceutical companies. That's why that uh, particular system is in place. Awesome. And I love that point of view that, and I tell patients this all the time in families, I'm not hiding anything. I'm going to tell you this, some potential side effects. I'm going to tell you the pros or if there's any cons. We're not hiding anything. And so I love that you highlighted that. And I think that builds the trust that there is a system to track problems and to try to have accountability, as you, as you mentioned. So can I spread out the vaccine? So a lot of parents come to us with these alternative schedules and, and they have this feeling that it's too much 
too soon, before two years of age, we're giving too much. And so let's just do one at a time or come in monthly. They want to do their own thing. And they're following these few doctors that have put out these vaccine-friendly books and information and, and feeding into that um, misinformation that it's too much for the immune system to handle. Talk to us about that. Right, so I think, I think um, first of all, it's understandable. And, you know, we, as you said earlier, um, we give vaccines to prevent 14 different diseases in the first few years of life. That can mean as many as 20 shots or 27 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at one time to prevent diseases most people don't see, using biological fluids most people don't understand. So it's not at all surprising that there's pushback. And people are thinking, wait a second, let's just take this slower. Let me just go one or two at a time and do it that way. But let's put this in some perspective. I mean, when you're in the womb, you're in a sterile environment. When you're outside the womb and you enter the real world, you're not. And very quickly, you have living on the surface of your body trillions of bacteria, literally trillions of bacteria. You have a hundred trillion bacteria living on the surface of your body. That's 10 times more than you have cells in your body. And each bacterium, each single bacterium, has between 2,000 and 6,000 immunological components, which is to say bacterial protein, bacterial polysaccharide, which is the sort of complex sugar on the surface of the bacteria. So you're constantly making an immune response to that. I mean, your body makes about five grams of a particular immunoglobulin or antibody called secretory immunoglobulin A every day to make sure that those bacteria stay at the surface, right? 2,000 to 6,000 immunological components per bacteria bacteria and trillions of bacteria on your on your body. If you add up all the immunological components in vaccines, it adds up to about 160. Not 160,000, 160. I mean, it is really literally a drop in the ocean of what you encounter and manage every day. I think a single cold is a greater challenge to your immune system. This is a virus, a common cold virus, that's going to reproduce itself hundreds or thousands of times in your body. Or a cut to your knee is a greater challenge to your immune system than the vaccines that you're getting the first few years of life. So what all you're doing by separating out or spacing out vaccines is increasing the period of time during which children are susceptible to these infections with no benefit. It may make you feel better, but it's not any different for the child. All right. And like you said, it leaves your child open to infection. So there you're not that schedule is meant to protect them during the times in their life that they're more likely to come into contact with these things. And so when you alter that schedule, you're leaving your child susceptible to these infections that we're trying to prevent. Absolutely. So let's talk about vaccine safety. So I had a parent to say to me, vaccines are poison, right? I'm sure you've heard that. <laughs> poison. I've had parents to challenge after they've done a little research and say, why would there be mercury, formaldehyde, preserve, all of these things? Because they, they're trying to do their research. Why would that be in children's vaccines? So the issue, parents worry about safety. Why is this stuff in there? Is it harmful to my child? And why would you want to put that in a vaccine? Can you explain that to parents? No, I think you should be skeptical of anything you put in your body. I think it's perfectly fair that um, when you are about to immunize your child, you look very carefully at what it is that they're getting and make sure that, that, that you're comfortable with, with what's in that 
Oh, I mean, it's amazing to me how people go into a GNC center, you know, buy these things off the shelf, which is basically an unregulated industry, where often the label in no sense indicates what's actually in that bottle. And, and that they don't have any problem with, with vaccines, which are highly tested, highly FDA regulated, that they have a problem with. In any case, um, you know, vaccines are biologicals. You can't take the biologicals out of a biological. I mean, viral vaccines mean that viruses have to grow in cells. So, so you're going to have, you know, all the things that are associated with cell growth that could be in there in trace amounts. I mean, you want to make sure that you have a preservative in vaccines because if you're giving multi-dose vial, when you get to the eighth, ninth, or tenth dose, you could inadvertently have introduced a bacteria or fungus into that vial. So you want to make sure you have something in there that keeps that fungus or bacteria from growing and causing harm. Um, you know, formaldehyde is used as an inactivating agent. So, for example, vaccine viruses like hepatitis A or polio, you want to make sure you completely kill that virus so formaldehyde is used. But, you know, and those all often sound terrible. I mean, mercury sounds terrible. You're never going to, you know, make that sound good. It's not like there's a national center for the appreciation of heavy metals, you know, standing up in defense of mercury. But the fact of the matter is, if you just take mercury as an example, if you live on, and mercury, ethyl mercury is, is used in some multi-dose vials of influenza vaccine as a preservative to make sure that that multi-dose vial doesn't get contaminated as you keep violating the rubber stopper again and again with the syringe and needle. So, so mercury's in the Earth's crust. I mean, assume you live on the planet Earth, you're exposed to mercury. Anything that's made from water, including breast milk and infant formula on this planet is going to have mercury in it, specifically methyl mercury, which has a half-life 10 times longer than the mercury that's in vaccines. So a baby, an infant, who either drinks uh, formula or drinks breast milk on this planet will be exposed to 25 times more mercury than they would ever get from a vaccine. Now, that's not dangerous. I mean, as, as was said by a chemist named Paracelsus in the 17th century, the dose makes the poison. I mean, in your body, you have circulating a variety of heavy metals like cadmium or thallium or beryllium or arsenic because you live on the planet Earth and those heavy metals are in the Earth's crust. So you're always going to be exposed to low levels of that. The point is, is that it's low levels. The same thing with formaldehyde. I mean, formaldehyde is part of single carbon metabolism. We have all have formaldehyde in our circulation ever since we crawled out of ocean on the land because we engage in single carbon metabolism. There is no getting rid of any of those things. The point is to make sure that there are doses well below anything that could cause harm, and that's true for all of those products. But, you know, it never sounds good, right? Formaldehyde is used to preserve dead bodies. Mercury is a, it certainly can be toxic at high levels, so therefore it should, none of it should be in there. And that's what people will say. Just don't expose me to any mercury. I don't want any mercury in there, period. But it's such a trivial uh, amount of what you're exposed to all the time that it doesn't matter. I mean, you take Okay. I that was I just love the way you explained that. So parents, listen to that clip right there five times to get it in your head. <laughs> I understand, and we get all of the concerns that parents have, but that was a perfect explanation. So the next question, the big question, is do vaccines or certain vaccines like MMR cause autism? And I know you're probably so tired of answering that because you answer that all the time, right? But explain, <laughs> I've heard you. I, I also came to your course at the conference and I hear you do this talk and it's amazing. So anyway, explain that to people, break that down for us. So there was a paper that was published in a journal called The Lancet, which is a general medical journal out of London by a British gastrointestinal surgeon named Andrew Wakefield. That was basically a case series. I mean, it was 12 children, eight of whom 
had developed autism within a month of receiving the vaccine. You could argue the best thing you could say about that paper, the nicest thing you could say is that it raised a hypothesis. It raised a question. Could vaccines have done this? Here it is. The story was eight children got an MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella, combination vaccine, and within a month, they developed signs and symptoms of autism. Now, as it turns out, there was fraud in that paper. There was misrepresentation of clinical data. There was misrepresentation of biological data. In fact, at least one of those children actually had developed signs and symptoms of autism before they ever got the MMR vaccine. But that side, you still could answer this question. You could test this question. And what you would do is you would do large studies retrospectively looking at children who did or didn't get the MMR vaccine and control for things like healthcare-seeking behavior or medical background or socioeconomic background to make sure that those two groups were alike in all aspects except for receipt of the MMR vaccine so you could isolate the effect of that one variable. That study has been done 18 times in seven different countries on three different continents involving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children, and all those studies show exactly the same thing which is MMR vaccine doesn't cause autism. You are no more likely to develop signs and symptoms of autism if you got that vaccine or if you didn't. I mean, I think the upsetting part of this is that so many studies have been done. I mean, that's a lot of wasted money, actually, on a fruitless, dead-end hypothesis. But there it is. I think there still are some people, no doubt, who, um, who still hold the belief that MMR causes autism. And maybe the answer is for, to that is because we still don't have a clear understanding of the cause or causes of autism. And he was someone who stepped up and said, look, this caused it, even though he was dead wrong. So it's done a lot of harm. Um, there are certainly uh, people in this country now who have chosen not to get the MMR vaccine for that reason. And as a consequence, even though we eliminated measles in this country by the year 2001, there was no more measles spread from one American child to the other by the year 2000. Amazing for a virus that is so highly contagious. Nonetheless, last year we had 1,200 cases or at least 1,200 cases of measles because a critical number of parents had chosen not to vaccinate their children. Measles, before there was measles vaccine, killed 500 children every year in this country. It's a dangerous game we play. And the other thing that nobody ever talks about is the rubella vaccine. Remember, rubella is a virus that when it infects pregnant women in the first trimester, that causes an 85% likelihood that a child will be born with severe, permanent, congenital birth defects of the eye, ear, and heart. Let that virus come back into this country again and see what the response is. I mean, if you think people were scared of Zika virus, I mean, Zika also causes congenital malformations in about 13% of women who were infected with that virus in the first trimester. With rubella, it's 85%. I mean, the, the, there was a, in early 1960s in Philadelphia, which is where I live, one out of every 100 pregnancies was complicated by rubella. That's a scary virus also. So it's a dangerous game we play. I, I think people can reasonably ask the question, look, my child was fine. They got a vaccine. Now they're not fine. Could the vaccine have done it? The good news is those are answerable questions. And that's fine. And I think most people believe it. Uh, there was recently a paper that was published just in the last month asking parents of autistic of children with autism, do you think the vaccines cause autism? 85% said no. So I think that that would have been different 20 years ago. I do think those studies matter. But still, there are 15% of parents of children with autism who believe vaccines have done it, even though all the evidence shows that that's not true. I like that statistic because my follow-up question was in the age of celebrity. 
and people who can get information out, their anecdotal experience. My child got this vaccine. They were fine before, and now they're not. They're diagnosed with autism. I believe it was the vaccine, right? But I think what you said about 85%, that stat was powerful to explain that still most parents with children who have autism do not think it was the vaccines. And so that was my follow-up question. Say, so how do you counteract that? How do you counteract this celebrity information, these anecdotal stories that people have uh, that says, I know that's what did it. What do we say to that? And so I think that is that is a good statement. Anything else you usually say to that? No, I think that's it. I mean, it's these are answerable questions. The trick is, is you know, when, when a celebrity steps up, like Jenny McCarthy or Jim Carrey or others who have stepped up and said, look, vaccines cause autism, people think they know them. I mean, are they attractive, well-spoken people who people have seen on the big screen movies or the little screen on television? And they think they know them. They And so they trust them. They believe that they are, in some ways, the roles that they play. And um, it's it's galling to me actually that people have who have a particular expertise in this case Jenny McCarthy and, and Jim Carrey are experts in acting. I mean that's what they do. They then believe that that then allows them to express an expertise in another area. I, I feel that way by the way same way about scientists. I think scientists who are experts in one area should stick to that area and not go beyond that. Linus Pauling, for example, was a brilliant biochemist. I mean he's the one who figured out the the, the secondary and tertiary structures of proteins for which he won a Nobel Prize. Great. Stick to that. When he started talking about how vitamin C could cure cancer, he was well out of his field and shouldn't have done that. So I think this is true of everybody. Stick to your expertise. Stay in your lane. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about vaccine side effects. Like you said before, we're not hiding anything. There can be some uh, side effects when you take a vaccine, mild, moderate, maybe severe. And there's a process for handling that. So let's talk a little bit about that. Right. So, so anything that has a positive effect, like vaccines, will have a negative effect. If something doesn't have any negative effect, it probably never had a positive effect. So can vaccines cause harm? Absolutely. I mean, aside from just pain or redness or tenderness at the site of injection, I'm not talking about that as serious harm. I mean, you know, vaccines like the oral polio vaccine, which we used in this country really from the early 1960s up until the year 2000, could itself cause polio. The oral polio vaccine, Albert Sabin's polio vaccine, was a rare cause of polio. It occurred in about one per 2.4 million doses. That was uh, rare, but it was real. And every year, even though we eliminated polio from this country by the 1970s, every year for almost 20 years, there would be six to eight cases of polio caused in this country by the polio vaccine. The only cause of polio in this vaccine, in the I'm sorry, the only cause of polio in this country in the 80s and 90s was the polio vaccine. So that's why we got away from that vaccine, moved to an inactivated polio vaccine, the so-called Jonas Salk vaccine by the year 2000, and therefore eliminated that problem. But that was a serious side effect. The second is, is uh, probably the most common, actually, is having a, a severe allergic reaction to a vaccine component. The most common allergic reaction would be to, um, to gelatin, which is used as a stabilizing agent in, in some vaccines. That's also fairly rare. It occurs in one per 1.4 million doses, but it is treatable. That's why you're asked to stay in the doctor's office for about 15 minutes after you get a vaccine in case you have a severe allergic reaction. But I'm sure 
pediatricians like you or other physicians out there have spent an entire lifetime and haven't seen that kind of reaction, but it can happen. So that, that's another example. There's other examples. There, there was a, a swaline adjuvanted influenza vaccine that was used in Europe, but it didn't happen to be used in the United States. Um, in 2009, there was a rare cause of narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is a permanent disorder of wakefulness. Um, and so that that was, was a problem. We never used that vaccine in this country, and now we know why it happened and, and can avoid it happening again. But I think, you know, we're always on the lookout for that. That's why we have uh, groups like the Vaccine Safety Data Link. That's why we have the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Always vigilantly looking out for any real side effects uh, that are caused by vaccines because, you know, we're asking the public to, uh, to use them. And, and so we have to make sure they're as safe as possible, giving them to healthy children. That's right. So I imagine we prep parents in the office. You know, you get this vaccine, you may get a fever, you may have pain or redness at the side, maybe a little fuss, you know, those types of things. If you're concerned, definitely call us, come back. We have a few that, that come back. So those are milder, right, side effects that we tell parents about. What are some concerns that you can think of right off the top of your head that parents should be, you know, that could have to go to the emergency room or come right back in to the office, some of those things? The most common is having an allergic reaction okay. to vaccine, and, but that occurs really within 15, 20 minutes. It's, it's uh, not something that occurs a day or two later. Sometimes you can have sort of a, a knot at the site of the injection, which is a so-called delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, uh, which, can, which can happen after a vaccine. But again, that's pretty unusual, and it goes away. It doesn't cause any permanent harm. But the most part of vaccines, I would argue, are the safest, best-tested things we put into our body. Okay. Certainly safer than a lot of things you get at the GNC Center. Ah, oh, I like that. All right. And I do see the knot. That's one of the reasons they come back. Fever or that knot, especially in the infants. Absolutely. On their on their legs. So the next question, let's talk about when parents say to us, I'll get the mandatory vaccine so my child can go to daycare or go to school. No problem. They don't have a problem with that. But when it comes to optional things like flu, we talked about briefly earlier, and HPV, they don't want it. Nothing that's not mandatory. They don't want that. So let's talk to parents about why these vaccines are just as important. You hit on flu. So let's talk about HPV. Yeah, just as important. I would argue they're the most important. I mean, if you have to pick, you know, what vaccine preventable disease is most likely to kill you? Influenza. I mean, we've had 8,200 deaths from influenza this year. Every year we'll have 100 to 150 children die of influenza. So that's the most important vaccine to get okay. because that's the one most likely to kill you. I'd argue second is probably HPV. I mean, HPV or human papillomavirus is a known cause of cancer of the head, neck, anal, and genital area. Every year, HPV causes 30,000 cases of cancer. Every year, HPV causes 5,000 people to die. I mean, they, they, they usually take 20 or 25 years after that infection to get that cancer and to die from that cancer, but it'll happen. So, I mean, this year, for example, typically in the United States, about half of children, boys and girls, get a vaccine that is recommended routinely in adolescence. That means, just statistically, that 2,000 or 2,500 children will grow up and die from a preventable cancer because they haven't gotten that vaccine. I mean, you don't know who they are. You don't know what their names are, but they have names. And I think if we knew their name, we'd be, be make sure that we got them that vaccine, knowing that 20 or 25 years from now, they're going to die from an HPV-associated cancer. But we don't know their names. And so essentially, you know, we, we don't give them the vaccine because we don't push it hard enough. I think we should... 
make it very clear to parents that a choice not to get an HPV vaccine is it's not a choice. It's not a risk-free choice. It's a choice to take a different and much more serious risk. I think people are cavalier about the HPV vaccine because they assume that their child is never going to get HPV when 80% of people within five years of graduating from college will have been exposed to and infected with HPV. It's a common infection. Most people get over it, but not everyone. And that's, that's why you have to get the vaccine. So what about parents who say or feel, my child is not sexually active, so why should I give her this or, or him this vaccine right now, HPV? Well, it's only a preventive vaccine. It's only it's not a therapeutic vaccine. So once they've gotten infected, it's too late, number one. Number two is you, you could make this argument, which is sort of the focus on the family argument, you know, the conservative argument, which is this, the sort of the absence-free sex education argument. If you don't have sex before you're married, and your partner doesn't have sex before you're married, and neither of you stray from the marriage, i.e. have sex outside of marriage, you won't get a sexually transmitted disease. You won't get HPV. But that doesn't define most people. Most people do have sex before they're married. Uh, most people don't only have one partner with whom, knowing that the partner has only had them as their partner. So in the real world, that's not a good idea. So the, the assuming that your, your, your child is going to grow up and have sex and have sex in a manner similar to the way most people have sex in this country, which is more than one partner, then I think you need to protect them. Real world. I love that. In the real world. All right. Not in your fantasy mind. <laughs> in the real world. I love that. And that's kind of how I approach that as well, because you just don't know when your child is going to choose to have sex. So this is to prevent, as we always say. It's all about prevention. Now, back to the flu. I had some friends I ate breakfast with yesterday, and they asked me, you know, you know how this is as a pediatrician at a table of people, they're going to inevitably ask you pediatric questions, right? You can't get away from it. And so then I become the expert, and the question was the flu vaccine. Candace, how bad is the flu right now? And they talked about coronavirus, and then they said, I said, that's what you need to be worried about, the flu instead of coronavirus right now, exactly what you said earlier. And they asked me some questions and we chatted about it. And so this particular couple said, you know, we've never given our son the flu vaccine. He got it at two and three. And after he got it at three, he couldn't walk. And so we did all this workup, saw specialists, another anecdotal story, right? And we know it was the flu vaccine. We researched it. There's some type of immune response that gets in your joints and, and until it resolves, it went away in a week, but we researched it. It's a real thing. You don't know the name of that? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and so anyway, they don't get him the flu vaccine, give it to him anymore. And so I was concerned about that. So cause the flu, because many people believe that or give any other worse potential side effects. Now, we talked about side effects of other vaccines, but particularly people just believe that the flu vaccine makes you sick, gives you the flu, and causes all these weird side effects. Have you heard of that? Yes. I mean, I've, I've, heard, <laughs> I've heard many things about described to a variety of vaccines. I mean, so the flu vaccine is made by taking the two surface proteins on the on uh, the influenza virus, so-called hemagglutinin and norminidase, and essentially having that as a product. I mean, it's, it's not a live virus. It can't possibly reproduce itself. Therefore, it cannot possibly cause the flu. Now, it can cause low-grade symptoms, meaning sort of low-grade fever, some joint achiness like for a day or so. But that's it. I mean, it doesn't cause you not to walk. It, the problem with vaccines is that they don't prevent everything else that happens in life. I mean, you know, when, when the, the, the influenza vaccine prevents influenza, 
it doesn't prevent everything else. So I'll give you an example. When, when my wife, who's also a private practicing pediatrician, came to the office on a weekend day, and she was sort of helping the nurse get vaccines. So there was a four-month-old sitting on her mother's lap. And she, while she drew that vaccine up into a syringe, the four-month-old had, had a seizure went on to have a permanent seizure disorder, epilepsy, and, and died at age five with a chronic neurological illness. If my wife had given that vaccine five minutes earlier, I think there are no amount of data in the world, statistical data in the world, that would convince that mother of anything other than the vaccine caused it. Would you think I'm stupid? My child gets the vaccine, five minutes later has a problem, and now is dead from a chronic neurological disease. I am the mother of a vaccine-damaged child, even though she hadn't given the vaccine yet. So I think this is what you're always up against. People are looking for associations. They're looking for causal associations. I mean, this, the child got a vaccine, and now within a day or two, a week or two, or a month or two, they develop these symptoms. Could the vaccine have done it? And that's a fair question. The good news is it's an answerable question, and when it gets answered again and again and again, and people still don't believe it, that's the frustrating part. That's when they move from someone who is a vaccine-hesitant parent or a vaccine-skeptical parent, which is fine. I think it's fine to be skeptical to question. That's when you cross the line from being a skeptic to being a cynic. Now you're a conspiracy theorist. Now you believe there's a big conspiracy to hide the truth. Now you don't believe data anymore. I mean, when those 18 studies were done showing that MMR vaccine didn't cause autism, there's two ways to interpret that study. Either one, the reasonable way, which is it didn't, it wasn't found to cause autism because it wasn't there to be found. Or two, there's a vast international conspiracy involving hundreds of researchers across the world, all dedicated to hide the truth, all deeply in the pocket of the, uh, the medical establishment and the pharmaceutical industry. That's just not true. Okay. It's been said, it's been said, and, and it's done. <laughs> I like that. So my last question, because of the, the skeptics and the cynics and people who are hesitant about vaccines, and also for religious reasons, some people have vaccine exemptions. Um, you have um, information about that. You write about that in your books. You talk about that. Should we have vaccine exemptions and are they dangerous? Because I know that's a big fight in many states right now because of the measles outbreak. Well, certainly we should have medical exemptions, and, and all 50 states do have medical exemptions. If you're immune compromised because either you were born with a dysfunctional immune system or because you're getting cancer chemotherapy or immune suppressive therapy or biological therapy that is suppressing your immune system, you shouldn't have to get certain vaccines like live attenuated viral vaccines. Definitely true. That's an exemption that, that is medically based. Then there's a non-medical exemption the so-called religious or philosophical exemptions, which don't make a bit of sense. They don't. I mean, it's, first of all, religious exemption, really? I mean, religious teach you to care about your child. All religious teach you to care about your child. All religious teach you to care about your family and care about your community. A choice to put your child in harm's way unnecessarily is a specifically and profoundly unreligious thing to do. I don't buy that. I really don't. The second is the so-called philosophical exemption or personal beliefs exemption. First of all, Philosophical phyla, I, I live in Philadelphia, phyla, love, sophos, wisdom. Where's the wisdom that says it's better not to get a vaccine than get one? And, and personal belief exemptions? I mean, vaccines aren't a belief system. They're an evidence-based system. Uh, religion is a belief system. I mean, you have to believe. Well, I'm not saying don't believe it. I'm just saying that's a belief system. You have to believe that, you know, that Moses is part of the Red Sea. Because you have to believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead after he was dead for a few days because that violates what we know as the central laws of nature. I'm not saying don't believe it, I'm saying that's a belief system. Vaccines are built on a mountain of evidence. I mean, there's a book 
titled Vaccines. Stanley Plotkin is the senior editor. It's, it's about 1,600 pages long, and it has 20,000 references. I mean, that's a mountain of evidence, and it's just uh, – so I don't buy it. I really don't buy it. I don't think it should be your inalienable right, inalienable right as a United States citizen to allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. Uh, you know, there are 500,000 people in this country, many of them are children, who can't be vaccinated. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting cancer chemotherapy. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting immune-suppressive therapy for their chronic diseases. They depend on those around them to protect them. It is your job to protect them. I think it's your job as a member of society to protect them and yourself and your children. I don't buy it. I think it doesn't make a whit of sense, and I think it does harm. So there you have it. Medical exemption, okay, yes. Personal, philosophical, religious, no. <laughs> there you have it. All right. So that that's, no, we don't want to do that. So where do you think that's going? It's a big fight. Legally. That's where it's going. It's a big fight. I think, you know, you had, um, there now, it used to be that only West Virginia and Mississippi had only medical exemptions, meaning didn't have philosophical or personal belief exemptions, didn't have religious exemptions. Then California became the third state by eliminating a philosophical exemption to only have medical exemptions. Then Maine became the fourth state. New York became the fifth state. New Jersey is on the verge of becoming the sixth state. So I think people are getting sick and tired of watching other people make decisions, not just for their own, for their children, but for also other people's children. They don't like it that they have to sit in a waiting room, knowing that there are other people who haven't vaccinated their child, knowing that it could expose a child or send a child to a school, knowing that there may be a significant number of children who aren't vaccinated, which then puts their child in harm's way. Interestingly, there was a study done this was years ago. It was published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. It was an outbreak of measles in the Netherlands. And, and the, the conclusion may seem counterintuitive until you think about it. Obviously, you're in the best position if you're vaccinated and you're living in a highly vaccinated community. You are actually better off being unvaccinated, living in a highly vaccinated community, than being vaccinated, living in a highly unvaccinated community, because vaccines aren't 100% effective. I think the most upsetting thing parents say, actually, is when they say, what do you care what I do? You're vaccinated. That makes the assumption that vaccines are 100% effective. That's not true. I mean, one of the better vaccines, one of the best vaccines is the measles vaccine. I mean, two doses of the measles vaccine provides at least 95% of protection for the rest of your life. But that means one of every, every 20 children isn't protected. Your child may be one of those children. I just don't. Uh, I don't like that. But be a member of society. Be a contributing member to society. Protect your child and protect those with whom your child comes in contact. Uh, it's, your, it's your responsibility. It's your job as a member of society to do that. That's why we need that herd immunity or community immunity that you're talking about. And then also people don't think about very young children prior to getting vaccines. Innocent young children that, you know, one month old prior to two months, that could also be exposed. And some of these infections are deadly to them if they get exposed. So we, we need to kind of protect them as well and everyone yeah. else. So I want to ask you about some resources. So your book, the book I have that I had to uh, personally sign by you, Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All. But you have a new book coming out in April. You want to tell us a little bit about that and then follow up with some Parents, you know, Dr. Googles, Facebook groups, social media, all of these things, it's hard to tease out what's accurate. So please, from you, give us some trusted evidence-based resources on vaccines uh, that parents could use. 
Right. Well, I think regarding vaccines, we have something at Children's Hospital called the Vaccine Education Center. Um, we think we've answered every possible question parents could have about vaccines. We have a lot of information there, including the original papers, which uh, which address some of these questions. So that's that's the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Just Google that. It's vaccine.chop.edu. I think any question you could possibly have is answered on that site. Um, in terms of the next book, I have a book coming out uh, in April uh, with HarperCollins called um, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. And what it does is it's sort of those situations in modern medicine where there's abundant evidence that we shouldn't be doing something, but we do it anyway, like treating fever or, frankly, finishing the antibiotic course. So it's science-based review of all those situations. Um, it looks at vitamin D, it looks at vitamin C, it looks at sort of screening programs like thyroid screening programs and prostate screening programs and, and uh, breast cancer screening programs. It looks at knee arthroscopies and sort of goes through the data to show that even we as doctors sometimes continue to do things even though there's abundant evidence that says we shouldn't be doing it anymore. Uh-oh. I can't wait to read that. I'm probably going to be in trouble a little bit. Aren't we all, right? <laughs> I know. I thought I'd alienate the few remaining people that actually like me in this world. That's right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Offit, for coming to do this show. I've always had so many vaccine questions from parents on my platform, in practice, and this was very helpful. And um, you're the expert. So coming from you, I really appreciate the information. And thank you for coming to kid around with me. Any last words? No, thanks for asking me. All right. Thank you guys for listening. And we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. To get more kid health information, visit drcandismd.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share this episode and the Kidding Around with Dr. Candace podcast.